sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Today, we're going to take a look at the age-old issue of government funding of religious schools. But first, a quiz. What do you call a school that is funded by the state? We call it a public school, don't we? And because, of course, the golden rule, no, the other golden rule, says he who has the gold makes the rules. Well, the Supreme Court just yesterday, as I'm sitting in the studio, heard oral argument in a case out of the state of Maine called Carson against Macon. And this case really does shine a spotlight on the whole issue of government funding of religion. Now, let me give you the background. The state of Maine obviously has public schools, they have public high schools, but there are remote parts of the state where there are not enough students to have a public high school. And so what the state does is they will pay what is essentially like a voucher. They'll pay tuition for those students to attend a private school. And apparently that covers about 5,000 students that primarily attend one of 11 schools in the state of Maine that fit that bill. And they're required to have a state-approved curriculum. So the private schools are running a state curriculum and getting funded by the state, even though they're private and they're obviously also taking students that are paying out of pocket. So then you have a couple of parents who want to send their kids to a Christian school, a Christian school, mind you, that would not accept the money from the state, even if the parents win the case. And the reason they won't take the money from the state is because the schools that the state funds have to comply with their civil rights regulations, and they're not allowed to discriminate. And these schools have policies that they will not hire gay and lesbian teachers, and they will subject those who engage in same-sex misconduct that would be subject to discipline, determination. That's not an unusual policy to have at a Christian school. But the state has every right to regulate the rules for the schools that get its money. Well, now we get this case that comes up to the Supreme Court. And based on the reports of oral argument, the six conservative justices feel that it would be discriminatory for the state to fund, you know, to offer these tuition subsidies for students to attend a secular private school and exclude the religious private schools. So if you're going to offer a benefit for secular private schools, it would be discrimination. You have to offer the same to the religious schools. Even though in this case, it's doubtful that the religious schools would take money in the first place. So that's the conundrum from a factual standpoint. In terms of the overall doctrine of religious freedom, 
this turns religious freedom completely upside down. And it really constitutes a complete repudiation of the entire concept of religious freedom as it was laid out in our Constitution by our nation's founding fathers, because they clearly understood a demarcation between religious institutions, between the church and the state. It's become common for Christians these days to criticize what's been referred to as the separation of church and state, but frankly, that's exactly what the Constitution does. It's not what the Constitution says, it's what it does. Similarly, separation of powers is a phrase that is not in the Constitution, but it's what the Constitution does. It divides power among the three branches of the federal government, and it recognizes spheres of power for state and local government as well. So we have a separation of powers, not because the phrase is in the Constitution, but because that's what it does. And we have a separation between church and state, not because the Constitution says that there will be a separation, but because the Constitution says in the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So, that begs the question. The term establishment of religion is not something that we understand in today's culture, in today's language. You have to go back to colonial times to understand what it is that our founding fathers were saying no to when they said no establishment of religion. And the most basic form of religious establishment in colonial times was money, was funding. And this was the issue that was fought over. And ironically, you know, the leading contenders against government funding of religion were Baptists. Baptists were the champions of the premise of voluntarism in religion. So in Massachusetts, for example, Baptists refused to pay taxes to support the town's church. And on occasion, for failure to pay those taxes, they lost their property. And of course, that caused an outrage, and so the laws were changed. And in some of those towns where there was a Baptist congregation, Baptists were permitted to pay the tax to support their own church. They refused to do even that. They rejected the idea that the state could collect the tax even to fund their own religion, not just to fund a religion they didn't believe in. So, interestingly enough, it was a Baptist leader, Baptist pastor John Leland, who convinced James Madison of the need for the First Amendment. Because Madison and others who were involved in preparing the Constitution, they omitted the Bill of Rights, not because they didn't believe in those rights, but because they didn't think the Constitution gave the federal government any power to, to violate those rights. But the, the Baptists were the ones who convinced Madison, no, we need it in writing. We need you to put it in writing. And there's a famous uh, encounter where John Leland spent several hours with Madison and convinced him. And Madison, of course, led the effort in the first Congress to draft the Bill of Rights. And the religion clause became the first of the rights that were adopted. And in denying to the federal government any power over religious establishments, that's what effectively separated church and state. So, you know, we have another principle, though, which is 
we require accountability for any money, any taxpayer funds that the government spends. And the government clearly has every right to regulate, you know, to, to pass rules in how that money is spent or on institutions that can have access to taxpayer funding. But the Supreme Court in recent years, you know, for decades, there were cases that were brought, how much aid can the state give to private religious schools? And is it sectarian? Is it non-sectarian? Uh, are these institutions sectarian? What can be done? And there was a chipping away for several decades, from the 60s to the 90s, a chipping away in these parochial cases of what the state could or could not do in providing some kind of incremental funding. And then I want to say in about 2002, the Supreme Court adopted a legal fiction that giving a voucher to a parent who turned in the voucher to the school, to, a, to say a Christian school, and then the school turns in the voucher to the state in exchange for money, so the money goes directly from the state to the school, that somehow the third-party parent uh, getting in the middle of that means that the state is not funding the school and that it's okay for a voucher program doesn't violate the prohibition on direct aid to religion. So that was a huge kind of reversal for the court. And then we came up, uh, you know, there have been other cases, but there was the Trinity Lutheran Church case where now for the first time the, uh, the court is saying, yeah, you can give direct aid to the church, and in fact, it can be required under some circumstances. Uh, the Lutheran Church was precluded from a program to provide aid for safety equipment for uh, preschools, uh, for preschool kids, and uh, this was the first time that direct money given to a church was approved by the court. Never been done before in uh, Supreme Court history. And now we come to the state of Maine having a rule that says, no, we don't fund religious schools. Everybody has a right to get this funding to go to either a public or private school, um, but not a religious school. And the six justices seem aligned to say that that's a form of discrimination, and therefore you can't exclude the, uh, the private religious schools from this program. So we've turned the Establishment Clause upside down, and it's almost completely a dead letter now. As far as a repudiation of our constitutional principles, it's pretty much complete. What remains to be seen is whether the Supreme Court will ultimately say, well, if you have a public school system, then you have to provide similar funding for the private sector. I don't think the court's prepared to go there yet, but at least in logic, in theory, that is the implication of the direction that they're going. That, you know, it's now being viewed under the lens of discrimination. If you're funding something that is secular, and then you're not funding the religious, that's a form of discrimination. Whether the court finds logical, consistent ways to put brakes on that, uh, to put some boundaries around that, remains to be seen. But from the standpoint of having a vigorous church-state separation, uh, you can see immediately 
that what happens is government funding seduces schools to conform to the government rules. So if you're a Christian school and you say, gee, I can get all this money and we're suffering because, you know, we're at a disadvantage economically. Other schools that are taking the money are attracting students and they're not willing to pay to come to our school. If we took the money, then we would do better. And so maybe they're coerced, seduced into changing their policies and saying, well, okay, so we'll adopt the state approved curriculum and we will remove the policies that say that we'll discipline, uh, you know, gay people and we'll conform our policies and practices to what the state requires. So what happens is the state seduces the church schools into becoming just another form of public school because what do you call a school that is paid for by the state? We call it a public school. And public schools comply with the state regulations and requirements. So the reason, the takeaway from all this, is the reason why Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists and other Protestants have defended, advocated the separation of church and state for centuries now, is because it's good for religious freedom. We want our schools to have the freedom to operate according to our own faith principles. We don't want to be subject to the state telling us what to teach, how to teach it, who can teach it. We'll keep an eye on this case. It's an important case. We will certainly keep you posted here at Freedom's Way. Thanks for listening. And as we close, as always, we want to urge you to support religious liberty. You can do that at the North American Religious Liberty Association at religiousliberty.info. If you or someone you know is suffering religious discrimination, you can check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org. You can listen to Freedom's Ring on SoundCloud or iTunes. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rydock. Until next week, let freedom ring.